I looked out across the congregation this morning, and there are a number of people who are not here who either are ill or have illness in their family. A couple of them are facing pretty critical situations. One of the beautiful things that we have in our church is that we send out prayer requests when we receive them. And I encourage you, when you receive one electronically, to stop and to pray for that person or that situation. Sometimes you may not know the person or the situation. God still hears our prayers. So I encourage you to be part of an army of folks who pray. So very often, and I heard it several times over the last few days, people say to me as I'm talking with them, I can feel the prayers. I know people are praying for us. So I encourage you to do that. Um, We have an extensive list right now, so I'm not going to start down the list. Um, But you've received most of those prayer requests, so please join with me and let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we have a tendency to make a routine out of worship and a routine out of being religious. We have a way of doing things in an orderly fashion and thinking that we have then arrived. And Lord, there's more to our relationship with you than just punching buttons or circling off something on our calendar that needed to be done. It's a dynamic relationship you've called us into. It's one that you've chosen, Lord, and you've chosen us, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you would commune with us and would like us to commune with you all day long, every day. When something pops up and we become aware of the needs of someone, you're prepared to hear us pray. When something happens in our own personal life, you're there for us, Lord. You have promised never to not be there that you work in every human situation, and you do that because you love us and because you care about us. You're the one, Lord, that's brought us together this morning, that we might worship you and be uniquely focused on you. And I ask you, Lord, to let this time together be a springboard for the rest of the week, for every one of us that we might be more in tune with you this week and that we might seek after you, that we might give freedom to your Holy Spirit to influence us and direct us, and that we might truly be a light wherever we go. And I ask those things, Lord, because you've already blessed us. You've already shown your love through your son Jesus. And you've already given freedom and power to your Holy Spirit who dwells with us. Father, I want to tell you how sorry I am and I hope all of us would echo that same regret that we thwart your Holy Spirit a lot of the time. We allow our own desires and our own wishes to get in the way of being surrendered to you and allowing you to have your way with us. We get into disputes with other people and we get upset with other people and we don't want to be around other people and so very often we're unforgiving and yet we want you to forgive us. Help us, Lord. 
Help us to know we haven't arrived yet. We're a work in process. And help us, dear God, I pray, to not only ask for forgiveness, but to change our ways. For under the power of your Holy Spirit, the potential resides with us to be the people you want us to be. Father, it is a world in conflict. It is a world that has been distorted by sin. It is a world that is perverse in the sense of not being what you intended. And we live in this world. We and our families and our loved ones and our friends are all impacted by this world. I pray, dear God, that you'd help us in our country. There seems to be a great deal of momentum away from you instead of toward you. A lot of people insisting on their own ways and making very unwise biblical decisions about how to live life and how we should live. There's a lot of talk about it, Lord, but we need your help to see change take place. I pray again today, Lord, asking that you might renew our land, that you might send your Holy Spirit into people who don't know you and bring them to faith, and that you might take those of us who by your grace already know you and give us a new enthusiasm to being a witness in this country and being a witness in our neighborhoods and being a witness in our own families. Father, there's conflict all over our world. Our children and our loved ones and the children and loved ones of many other nations are in uniforms, carrying loaded weapons, prepared to kill. I pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would move throughout the ranks of all of those people and that you would make yourself known and bring folks to you I pray, dear God, that you'd help those who suffer this morning, and we have lots of those in our own church. I pray for your peace. I pray that when we get through looking at all of the things that are challenging us, that the final ingredient would be to look at you and know you're really in control. Help us get our perspective, Lord, and help us keep our perspective. I thank you for our church. I thank you for the good things that are happening in our church. And it's quite obvious that you're at work in the lives of lots of folks. I pray you'd protect us, Lord, from the evil one. And not let him get any kind of a foothold here. But instead, dear God, I pray that you'd take us to the next level as a church spiritually. And draw all of us closer to you. Thank you, Father, for loving us. And thank you for allowing us to be your children. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know angels come in all different sizes? And I'm looking for an angel that has my glasses and she hasn't come back in yet.
I don't think. <laughs> Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me. And let's look at Philippians, the second chapter. We're going to pick up our study right where we left off two weeks ago. We're going to start today with the 12th verse. Philippians, the second chapter, beginning with the 12th verse. And we're going to study together through the 18th verse. Once you've found your place, please look up and put your finger in your Bible. And let's get some help before we start studying. Let's pray together. Father, uniquely, we're an educated people. We're a people who've been trained to think and to reason. We are people who have been blessed by you in so many ways intellectually. But, Father, all of that falls just a little bit short when it comes to studying your word. Father, help us not to do this under our own power. Your Holy Spirit influenced people to write these words. Might that same Holy Spirit that dwells in us now help us to understand and bring us under conviction. And help us to take home what we learned today and what we're reminded of today and help us to live by it. For, Father, you wrote this for us. So please bless the reading and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you had a mountaintop experience? Any of you? Anybody identify with that? Now, I want you to watch how tactfully I do this. If any of you, keep coming, Russell. (laughs) If any of you, this is what an angel looks like. (laughs) You're very kind, thank you. Well, good morning. (laughs) Have you had a mountaintop experience? Had a time when you just felt really close to the Lord and you knew something special was going on? I want you to go back. You all know this story. Go back to Exodus, the third chapter in your mind. Moses is a shepherd. He's got his father-in-law's sheep. He's herding them across a wilderness. He goes to the far side, the western side of that wilderness, trying to find water and feed. And, And those folks were on the move all the time trying to provide for their sheep. He gets on the far side and he goes to a mount called Mount Horeb, Sinai, Paran, by whatever name you'd like to call it. And when he gets to that mount, he's not just as taking care of the flock, but something else happens. He sees a bush and the bush is on fire. And the bush gets his attention, and while the bush is on fire, it's not burning the bush up. And he goes closer to look at it, and when he gets close to it, he hears a voice, and it's the voice of God speaking to him. And the voice of God says, be careful where you step. This is holy ground. Well, that's a mountaintop experience. 
And most folks would like to have a mountaintop experience and stay on top of the mountain. But folks, God doesn't give us those mountaintop experiences so we can reside there. He gives us those moments in our life when we come close to him because he's come close to us. And he speaks to us and he encourages us because he wants us to get off the mountain, get back in the valley, and face the challenges of daily life. So our final destination is not the mountaintop. Our final destination is walking in the Spirit on a daily basis. You struggle with life? You get times when you just want to turn around and just want to kick something? I have a friend who did that and he broke his foot. So be careful what you kick. But don't we all have those kind of times in our life? Times when we just really feel put upon and and disarmed and unable to cope with what's going on. And what the Lord is about to say to us in this passage is, let me tell you how to cope with those things. Don't expect life because you're a Christian to just be a constant mountaintop. But know that I have equipped you to live day by day. I want to read the passage to you and I want you to listen carefully as God speaks to us about how we are to live. Starting with the 12th verse, he says to us, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will provide yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as light in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. There's a little phrase at the very beginning of the passage, and I want you to look at it for a moment. In the 12th verse, it says, So then, he's saying, now let me continue my thought. He says, So then, my beloved, we read over that little phrase and keep right on going. And I want you just to stop and think a minute. When you write a letter to somebody, And you say, my beloved, surely that's not the first time you would have said that to them. To use that kind of a phrase, you're saying, this is something I've said before. You know I love you. You know I care about you. And he says, my beloved. You know what it means to be beloved? It means that you've experienced the love of God. That's how we learn to love. We're not born into this world knowing how to love anybody else. We just love ourselves. But when we have an experience with God through Jesus Christ, something starts to happen to us and we learn how to love because we have first been loved by him. And then we as a group start to love each other in the church. 
and we start to care about other people outside of the church. There are a lot of things that you and I can be known for. And I promise you, people in this community know about our church and about other churches. You know what the neon light ought to say to other people? Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church is a place of love. We're to love God and we're to love each other. And if we don't do anything else together, we need to perfect our love for each other. It's something we need to work on and something we need to be known for. You all got that? If I write you a letter five years from now and I say, my beloved, it's going to be because we are continuing to succeed at loving one another and loving God. That's my sermon for today. It absolutely could be. When we get that love quotient worked out, everything else starts to fall in place. If you look at the 12th and 13th verses, he says an interesting thing. He says, I want you to work out your salvation. And here's how he says it. Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And what he's saying is, kind of like a child and a father, he's saying, you know, when we were together, and I encouraged you to do things that were pleasing to God, you were striving to do those things. And he's saying, you did that. You tried. He said, but when I wasn't with you, you continued to do those things. And that's what gives us spiritual integrity as a church. That's what gives us spiritual integrity as a person. When we're not here, don't have a preacher standing before us, or we're not in Sunday school, when there's nobody directly holding us accountable in listening to what we say or looking in on what we're thinking, for us is a matter of integrity to be obedient to God like a little child. And that's what God wants for us. When we walk out of this place, it's not the end of a particular chapter of our life. It's just another step in our life. And Jesus is Lord here and out there for us. And it's a constant. He then uses a phrase, and this phrase has been misinterpreted, I think, by a lot of folks. He says, I want you to work out your salvation. Well, there's some who read that out of context and say, what that means is, if I can strive hard enough, I can be good enough to earn God's favor and I can get into heaven. Well, I am convinced, if you're honest with yourself, you can't believe that. You don't believe that, do you? Don't you know yourself well enough to know you keep messing up? So you can't earn your salvation. That's why we believe in salvation by grace. In spite of us, God loves us. In spite of our shortcomings and our sin and our constant falling back, he still loves us. Our whole society is built on a work ethic. You do a certain amount of work, 
and you get a certain amount of pay. Now, I'm the first to tell you that's starting to change in our society. But fundamentally, that's how we all think. But when you come to spiritual issues, it is not that way. If we get what we deserve, you and I are in big trouble. Instead, in spite of our sin, God has wrapped his arms around us and he loves us. And he encourages us to be new people in Christ. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? If it's not to save yourself, he's speaking to people who are already saved. By grace, the Philippians and you and I who have accepted Christ are already part of his family, part of his church. That doesn't have to be achieved. That's a done deal. And we can't lose that. So what's he saying? He's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to walk like one of my children. I want you to talk like one of my children. I want you to act like one of my children. And I don't want there to be any question about it. I want you to work it out day by day. I want you to take that mountaintop experience that you had, whether it's a little burning bush or a big burning bush. When you came to faith and you realized that God was in this with you. I want you to use that faith daily. And I want that to be the motivation for the way you live your life. Can you hear the encouragement Paul's giving? He's saying to us, I want you to stand up and I want you to walk through this life and I want you to do it with spiritual integrity. And then he uses a couple of words. He says... I want you to do this with fear and trembling. I think he means two things. On the one hand, I think he means I want you to be aware that God is an awesome God and he's the one that's commissioning you and you need to take that seriously. I don't think people do that today. I don't think we as a society think in terms of God as an awesome God. I don't think that we think in terms of a God who is anything other than love and grace. He is also a God of wrath, a God of justice, a God who wants to see his children be rid of sin and be repentant. One of the major denominations just recently has issued a new hymn book And they rejected a hymn that I think is a beautiful hymn because it uses the word wrath in it. And when they were challenged on this, they made this statement about that hymn and about the use of the word wrath. And they said, well, most of the people in our denomination, and they have several million members, don't believe in the wrath of God. So why would we put that in our hymn book? And what they're saying is they believe in part of the gospel. They believe in the part that embraces the truth that God is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace. But they don't embrace the balance of who God is, for he is also a God of justice and wrath. So when we come to hearing God say, here's how I want you to live your life, I want you to take this mountaintop experience and I want you to walk through life 
and I want you to walk through life being aware that I'm with you, he wants us to be in absolute awe that he's at work in our life. And he wants our focus on him, not on this world. So that we begin to see this world as he sees it. And we begin to relate to this world as he wants us to relate to it. Let me tell you the flip side of being fearful. There's somebody else at work in this world. Satan is mightily at work. Satan does not want one of you or me to walk with God. He doesn't want us to trust God. He doesn't want us to abide with God. He certainly doesn't want to see us transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He hates God. So we ought to be filled with fear and trembling as we walk through this life because we have an awesome God who wants us to walk with him and we have Satan, the adversary, who wants us to not walk with him. There's so many temptations in your life and mine. They're all around us every day. No matter how we try to walk with the Lord, those temptations are still going to be there. And it's so easy in the privacy of our thoughts or in our behavior for us to yield to those things. And Paul is saying, no, I want you to work your salvation out. I want you to take one step at a time, one day at a time, and I want you to live for God. And I want you to resist Satan. Do you understand? That's an awesome passage. He goes on to say to us in the 14th through 16th verses, I want you to prove yourselves. Prove in the sense of I want you to live the way God wants you to live. And he gives a couple of examples. He says, I want you to, and this is a paraphrase, quit grumbling and being involved in disputes. I wonder why he chose those things. There are lots of other things he could have picked to say. He said, I want you to quit grumbling. You know why we grumble? We don't want to do what's being asked of us. We don't want to go where we're being asked to go. We're like the little child who just says, I don't want to do that. And that's how we are as adults. We are grown-up little children. And we grumble about life. We grumble about what's going on. And I think Paul is trying to say to us, don't grumble. Know that wherever you are and whatever you're experiencing in this life, God has allowed that to happen and he's got a purpose. So quit grumbling about it. Now, you know who I'm preaching to right now? Y'all just getting to listen in. I've been grumbling too much lately. I told some people yesterday in a meeting, I'm going to really try to quit that, particularly since I'm preaching on it today. But it, it just happens, and we need to take a check every now and then and say, what am I doing? And disputes We need to not have disputes, particularly with other believers. If we do, there's something fundamentally wrong with what we're doing. We ought to be seeking the mind of God. And when people get in dispute with each other, 
More often it's because they want things their way. And we all ought to want it God's way. So we ought to be striving individually and corporately to understand God's mind and not have disputes among ourselves. I want to tell you, if you have a dispute with somebody, get in your prayer closet and get it worked out and get to that person and love that person. Let God take care of it. He will. He can absolutely manage whatever it is we're in dispute over. So Paul is saying when you walk this walk using the faith that you've been given through this mountaintop experience you've had, I want you to quit grumbling. I want you to quit having disputes. Isn't that an interesting encouragement? And he says, I want you to be aware that you live in an environment, this generation, that's a crooked generation. You know what that means? Distorted. Not what God intended. What God intended for Adam and Eve was an experience of joy and happiness, of pleasure, of peace. And sin has corrupted all of that. It is, as I said in my pastoral prayer, a perverse generation, meaning not what God intended. It has been changed. And when you and I are aware that the world that we live in is corrupted, we can become more sensitive to not being corrupted personally. You start to feel the contrast. God is saying, I want you to walk in the spirit. I don't want you to walk in the flesh. Paul teaches us that over and over again. I want you to walk with God at the center of your life, and I don't want you to walk with an absence of God, and I certainly don't want you to walk with Satan at the center of your life. So he's giving us a contrast, and he's saying, here's how I want you to live your life. Here's how I want you to work out your salvation. I want you to walk with me, and I want you to be a light. So many times we Christians say, well, you know, if I can get through the day and just not get really corrupted this day and do most things right, then it's okay. It's a good day. And God is saying to us, no, there's something else I want you to do. Wherever you go, I want you to be a light. I want people to know you genuinely care about them and love them. And when you have an opportunity to talk about Jesus, I want you to do it. I'm convinced, absolutely convinced under all kind of process that God has done inside of me, that we are a terrible failure. Our country could not be in the condition it's in if we were the light that God wants us to be. There's something broken there, folks. Christianity is not something you keep a secret. Christianity is something that oozes out of you because it's who your essence is, because God has changed your heart and you're a new person. So wherever you go, You don't put your faith on the shelf. Instead, you be that unique person. And you're working out your salvation. And you're pleasing God. Please think on that. 
Think about the fact that there's this whole army of people here and around the world who have been saved by grace. And we have the potential to change this world. But we have to decide to let the Holy Spirit have the freedom to do that with us individually. And you can do that. Or he wouldn't say, I want you to be the light. He wouldn't ask us to do something we cannot do. I think Paul adds an interesting little twist at the end of those verses. In 16, he says, you know, when I get to heaven, when Christ is here, I want to really be pleased with what I've seen you guys do. Isn't that neat? He's saying to the Philippians, I love you. You're doing good work. But when I get to heaven and you guys come to heaven, I want to say, look, look at what's happened. Look at what a beautiful thing you all did. If you look on down in the 17th and 18th verses, he says, I want you to rejoice. And you might say before you look any further at those verses, how can I rejoice when there's so much challenge in life, when there's so much hurt in life, when things are so messed up in life? And he's saying, look at me, I'm being poured out. You know what that means? He's in jail in Rome. He's in chains, chained to a Roman soldier. He's awaiting trial to see if he is going to live or die and he's got joy in his heart. I've always been impressed. Paul is in the Philippian jail. He's chained to the floor. He's been beaten. He hadn't had any medical care at all. You can imagine what's in that inner heart of that prison. The rodents. The stench. And he's chained there. And he's singing hymns of praise. Do you understand? Just because we face challenges in life, it should not take the joy out of us. Linda and I had the occasion to meet and spend time with Richard Wombrandt. Richard was an ordained minister in Romania in the 1930s. Nazi Germany invaded their country, took him out of the pulpit, imprisoned him and tortured him. After the Second World War, he went back into the pulpit. The communists came in. Repeatedly, not once, but repeatedly, they took him forcefully out of his pulpit. That's a challenge for preachers, by the way. Would I go back in the pulpit? He did, over and over again. His wife kept telling him he needed to. Isn't that a wonderful helpmate? And he'd go back in the pulpit. They'd come arrest him again, and they'd take him off to prison. Seventeen years of that. On one occasion, they put Richard in a prison cell 30 feet below the surface of the earth. They isolated he and the other prisoners so they could not hear each other. And he said the only time... He ever heard another human voice while he was there was when he would hear someone scream in pain as they were being tortured. He came to speak in a church that I pastored. Four young men, big strapping young men, drove up at our drive-thru 
And they got him out of the car and they carried him. Man must have been six foot five, six foot four. And they sat him down on the front pew. When we got to the point in the worship service where he was going to speak, we had placed a chair right in the center of the chancel. Those four young men picked him up, dressed in a blue suit and a white shirt and a tie and black socks. And they put him in that chair so he could speak to the congregation. Richard couldn't walk because they had tortured him so much that his feet were so disfigured he couldn't put weight on them. He talked to us about that pain and that suffering. And he was rejoicing in the Lord. He is a man who was poured out, just like Paul, and still found a way to rejoice with the hardships of life. In one of his books, He has a fable. You're going to have to follow carefully. The fable goes like this. There was a little bird. Tweety, tweety. Pretty little bird. A prince. A corrupt prince. Captured Tweety, tweety. Took him to his castle. Put him in a beautiful golden cage gave him the food that he would really enjoy. But Tweety Tweety was concerned about his sister and his brother and that they didn't know where he was. So he was sad. The rich rich prince realized the bird was depressed. He says to the bird, what's the matter? He said, my sister and my brother don't know where I am. They don't know what's happened to me. The prince goes out into the forest. He locates the sister and the brother. They're sitting on a branch. He starts to explain to them that their brother is okay. He's just a captive and has lost his freedom. And as the prince speaks, the sister topples from her branch and plops to the ground. And the prince looks, and it appears that the little sister is dead. He goes back to the castle. He walks into the room where Tweety Tweety is in this beautiful cage. And he begins to explain to Tweety Tweety that he told the brother and sister that he was okay, and she toppled from the limb and went plop on the ground. And as the prince told Tweety Tweety, Tweety Tweety fell from his perch and went bang in the bottom of the cage. The prince looked at that. Now the bird is of no value at all to him. He opens the cage. He takes the bird out. He walks to a window and throws what he thinks is a lifeless bird out the window. And as the bird clears the window, he spreads his wings and he flies out and flies up onto a branch next to his sister. And he says, all that looks bad is not bad. A lot of it's good.
you're not going to walk through life. And we're going to have all kinds of encounters, and some of them are going to really be challenging to us. And our tendency is to say, that's bad. Our tendency, tendency is to say, God's not in that. He's not helping us. Folks, that's just not true. And a lot of what we think is bad is good. Because God is working in that situation and working with us. And if we just have the mindset of it's bad, we miss the blessing. I cannot tell you how many times I've said to folks, your loved one is near death. Come to the point that you can let go. Let God have them. Because all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if you believe that, you can have joy with tears running down your face. And if you don't believe that, life's tough and becomes hopeless. You had a mountaintop experience? The purpose is to get you ready to live life. Moses had not just one, but a whole series. By God's grace, you and I will have moments of significant spiritual encouragement to help us get through this life and to give joy and praise to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul, Lord. He had an understanding of all this that you gave him that just escapes us. And yet, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can understand. Father, I don't know what everybody else is facing in life, but I know that we all face things. My prayer is a very simple one, Lord, that as we leave this place, you'd help us to be filled with joy that we might strive individually and corporately to work our salvation out and that we might prove ourselves. Thank you for making all that possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Isn't it easy to forget how good God is? Isn't it easy to let the stuff around us just smother us? And when you open the word of God and the Holy Spirit starts to work, you regain your perspective. He's a good God. And he loves you and he loves me. And he's here with us and he's going to be out there with us. So you walk out of here with confidence, knowing you belong to him and he's going to be with you. God bless you, and God keep you. May his face shine on you. May you shine that reflection so somebody else can see it. And may you experience his peace and have confidence in him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.